All right, well, if you can, please turn to Mark chapter 16 today. Mark chapter 16. We'll be in reading verses 1 to 8. So if you can, please stand for the reading of God's Word. Mark chapter 16, verses uh, 1 to 8. And when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. All right, you may be seated. I know, it's not the Christmas story, it's the Easter story. It's okay, we'll wrap it up. Uh, there's actually a lot of debate uh, concerning the ending of Mark's gospel. It's one of the most controversial portions, actually, in all the Bible. And here's why. Many uh, of the earliest manuscripts of Mark that have been found do not contain verses 9 through 20. And then yet there's other manuscripts that do, uh, many of them, actually. And so, so what, what do we make of verses 9 through 20? Uh, to make matters even more interesting, in either case, almost all scholars agree that verses 9 through 20 were not written by Mark himself. Uh, the theory is that they were added later on by another author or a group of authors or scribes uh, in order to give Mark's gospel a more thorough ending, a more like, understandable ending. And many scholars question the validity of Mark's ending with an of this incredible account. He's gone through all of this, and, and he would end it in verse 8 without recording anyone actually seeing Jesus, without including something about Jesus' ascension. But then again, Mark, uh, Mark didn't include anything of Jesus' birth or the Beatitudes or numerous parables that the other ones do, so he's not quite your typical author anyway. And so here's the deal. In my research, I found that the majority of scholars believe that Mark intentionally ended his gospel at verse 8. And then, as I said, verse 9 to 20 were added by another author to end Mark's gospel in a more acceptable manner. Why does this matter? Because depending on what you, where you, where one thinks Mark ended his book, there can be different conclusions, right? So some of you might be thinking, well, then, are you saying that 9 through 20 is not inspired? Uh, to which I would answer, no. I believe that God in his providence has placed everything in Scripture for us to learn from. Nothing is missing that should be there, and nothing is, is there that shouldn't be. So regardless of who wrote the ending, it is there from very early on. It remains part of the canon, so it's a portion of Scripture, and we learn from it. It's God-breathed. But I tend to agree with the scholars. I, I don't believe that Mark wrote verses 9 through 20. The language is different. The grammar is different. The style is different. Uh, the way that verse 9 is introduced, to me, always seemed out of place. And then why introduce Mary Magdalene if, if, as if we hadn't known her before, he had just mentioned her three other times in the preceding verses. So why, why now introduce her all over again? So it just seems kind of odd. So if Mark didn't write it, what was he trying to accomplish by ending his entire gospel about Jesus, the son and servant, with the word afraid? And that's what we're going to explore today. And then in a few weeks, 
uh, after Christmas, we're going to have a final message uh, concluding with verses 9 through 20 and glean some important truths from them as well, right? As I said, of all the words in the gospel to, to end with, why, why end with afraid? Mark records Jesus saying numerous times, do not be afraid. We've talked about that all year long. If, if you want folks to not be afraid, then doesn't an ending with the word afraid seem to contradict the point you've been trying to make all along? Wouldn't it be better to end with the word believe or faith? The response of the woman is not the response that you would have expected. There was, they come with hopelessness to the, to the tomb, and then they're alarmed, and then they run out with fear. Is that how you end a story about Jesus rising from the dead? It just seems odd. And that's what I love about Mark, though. He doesn't sugarcoat anything. He doesn't make the disciples look out to be like superheroes. He, he doesn't give us a happy ever ending after. He leaves us with a sort of tense ending, like, like what happened, all right? And for the original audience, the readers sitting in fear or hiding somewhere in Rome, can you imagine reading the ending? They said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now, I'd be thinking, boy, that's me right now. But what happened, right? Like, if those women remained in fear and never said anything, then how did that message come all the way to me sitting here in Rome? They must have gotten courage from somewhere, and we know that's from the Holy Spirit. How else would the gospel have traveled so far and so wide so quickly? Only 30 years later, and there were thousands upon thousands of believers all over the known world. So those women eventually had to say something. And for me, here is what I've gotten out of it, uh, and what's, what really struck me in my own life. Uh, if God can raise Jesus from the dead, if he can turn fearful, tongue-tied people into bold witnesses, if he can take the story of a, a no-name man from Nazareth who was buried in a tomb and then rose again to the far reaches of the Roman Empire and to the very seat of power, of, of Roman power at that time, then he has no problem using little old me or little old you. Because if I'm honest, there are many times that I'm afraid, just like these women were. I was afraid when the pandemic began in March. I was afraid when we opened our church in May. I was afraid when the mandates came down. I was afraid when we started hearing of people getting sick. And so I'm often thrown into terror and amazement and fright, just like those women were. But the fact that I'm reading the gospel today, the fact that we're reading the gospel today, means that God's Spirit emboldened those women to not be afraid and to tell the whole story to everyone that they could. God can, he has done, and he will do the same for you and me. He takes everyday, average, fearful, anxious, alarmed, hopeless men and women who struggle to believe and uses their mustard-sized seeds of faith to turn the world upside down. Now, fear is an incredibly powerful uh, motivator. I would argue that it's one of the most powerful motivators. When I was a little kid, um, a long time ago, my mom used to say something that would strike fear into my heart, to my little chest. And I, like any other kid, would find myself in situations where my will would conflict with my mom's will. It's a politically correct way of saying that I disobeyed my mom. I sinned. I try to use that word with my kids so they understand it. Uh, but for some reason, my way just seemed better than my mom's. I hope you can relate. I thought I could do it my own way, or I would push the limit and do something I wasn't supposed to, or I'd have fun, but then I'd be in trouble. And I could handle it when my mom would punish me. I don't know how many of you are there like that. I could handle it when my mom would punish me, 
uh, that was no problem. But when she'd say those infamous words, those words that bring terror into the heart of every five-year-old, you just wait until your father comes home, right? <laughs> Any of you ever said that? Yeah. Man, that would always ruin the rest of the day. <laughs> the fear of what dad would do when he came home from work made playing a whole lot less appealing. And so I'd do whatever I could. I'd clean up the yard, clean the basement, clean the bathroom. <laughs> I'd do the dishes, whatever it took so that I could get out of waiting till my dad came home. It didn't help. Um, she didn't let me off the hook, and he still came home, if you know what I mean. Um, my personal opinion, I think that's how mom got her house cleaned. <laughs> I'm kidding, mom. Um, but we are fearful creatures. We're fearful creatures. You know, from my knowledge, the Gospels never record Jesus being afraid. Jesus was not afraid when he was standing before the Sanhedrin or when the Pharisees were going to stone him, or when the soldiers took him, or when he was walking on the water, or when Lazarus died, or when he was being questioned by the scribes, or when he was surrounded by a battalion of soldiers, or when he was carrying his cross, or when he was on the cross. Not once is it recorded that Jesus was afraid. The closest that Jesus came to being afraid was in the Garden of Gethsemane when Mark records that he was greatly distressed. In that context, Mark uses the word which is translated amazed, alarmed, distressed. The same word used of these women here. And, and the word carries an element of fear, but the word for frightened is phobeo in Greek, and that's not the word that Mark used in the Garden of Gethsemane. Think of it. The closest thing that Jesus, the closest that Jesus came to being afraid was when he was lying on the ground, writhing in agony and soul and pain of spirit, sweating drops of blood, begging God to give him another way. The thing that Jesus was, was, came closest to fearing was the temptation to disobey God and forsake his will. I would argue that's not one of our top ten fears. But it's the only thing which Jesus came even close to fearing. And when Jesus, when distressed and alarmed, he did not run away in silence in fear. No, it drove him to the Father in prayer, and he surrendered his will to the will of the Father. And then he courageously obeyed. And that is the contrast Mark is making as he ends this amazing book. He's, we will, be like, will we be like Jesus or will we be like the women and run away? Jesus' obedience led to his death, yes, but God raised him from the dead. He's alive. He is risen. He's not in the tomb anymore. Before we need to get there, we need to pick up where we left off last week. So Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of Joseph and the mother of Jesus, saw where Jesus was laid in the tomb and and like Simeon had prophesied to Mary way back when Jesus was a baby, a sword pierced her heart and the hearts of the followers of all that were around Jesus. And wouldn't it be better? I'm sorry. There seemed to be, there seemed like there was no coming back from that place. Jesus was in the tomb and he was sealed in there. And to us humans, death is final. And they did not know the end of the story like we do. We can look back at it now and make this observation when things seem most hopeless, that is precisely when God is doing his most marvelous work. Remember how we looked at that last week? And I quoted Chesterton last week and said, Hope means hoping when things are hopeless, or it is not a virtue at all. As long as matters are really hopeful, hope is a mere flattery or platitude. He says, it is only when everything is hopeless that hope begins to be a strength. And Mark is planting seeds of hope in us as we read this unique ending so that we receive strength to obey Jesus. 
He does so by weaving together three negative emotions and three unique witnesses to Jesus' resurrection. You can see those in your outline. There's hopelessness and, and, the, and, and the witness number one, the empty tomb. There's alarm and witness number two, the angel. And then fear and the witness number three, the women. So we're going to look at our text today. So in verses one to four, the empty tomb and hopelessness. Now, there were three women. Now notice who God did not choose to witness the resurrection of Jesus. Not Peter, not the disciples, not the soldiers, not the Sanhedrin, not a crowd of people. God chose three women to be the first witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus. And in those days, in that society, women were not afforded the same rights and privileges that they are today. They would not even accept the witness of a woman in a court of law. But God, God chooses the weak, the despised, the, the overlooked, the outcast, the downtrodden, the lowly, the fearful, to be the first witnesses of his great work. I love that about God. And it says, on the first day of the week, and very early, when we piece together all the gospel accounts, it appears that the women left their homes early in the morning, while it was still dark, and it seems that they arrived at the tomb just at dawn, just when the sun was coming up over the horizon. The first day of the week was the day upon which God, way back in Genesis, had said, let there be light. And there was light. And God separated the light from the darkness. And now, thousands of years later, on the first day of the week, just when the sun is rising over the horizon, God says, let there be life. And in him was life. And the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not overcome it. John 1. Jesus is the light and the life. His death, burial, and resurrection result in eternal life and light in the darkness of the sin-filled world. And the wonderful thing is that darkness cannot overcome it. So take heart in that truth. Darkness will not and it cannot win. The light and life of Jesus is way too powerful. But notice they were, these women were asking one another, who will roll the stone away? So they were not expecting Jesus to be risen. They were expecting to find his dead body in the tomb. They were not expecting light and life. They were expecting the expected. Jesus died and he was placed in the tomb. That's where they expected to find him. They were expecting a dead body, smell, decay, stone, grief, sadness, continued loss. Come to point two, the alarm. You can read along there. Um, but they meet a young man. Matthew records that this was an angel, and the angel had rolled away the stone. Luke records that there were two angels, both in dazzling apparel. Remember, angels are intimidating creatures. They're tall and dazzling and strong. And the women were expecting to see one thing, and they encountered something completely different. Unexpected, miraculous. Their response was that they were alarmed and frightened, distressed, dare I say, intimidated. And the word used to describe the women at the tomb is the same word used to describe Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus was alarmed at the gravity of the situation in the garden. And the women, when they encountered the angel, were filled with alarm. They were greatly alarmed. Before we come, too, come down too hard on the women, though, let's ask ourselves, how would we respond in that situation? You know the feeling when you've planned to do one thing and you have expectations of how it's all going to turn out and then something completely out of your control changes the whole plan or the whole situation. 
Even if the change is good, it seems that your emotions and thoughts can't keep up with it, right? And these women had bought spices. They had left early in the morning. They had been grieving for many hours, probably up all night. And they came expecting a body in the tomb and a stone in the way. And they are walking along trying to figure out a solution to the stone. They're walking along with very little hope. They were sorrowful, grieved, expecting Jesus to be dead. And these poor women were caught completely off their guard. And they did what all of us humans instinctively do in moments that are difficult to comprehend. They were alarmed, they were afraid, and they said nothing. And the angel tells them, don't be alarmed. Now, I've been married to my wife long enough to have learned that you don't tell a woman to stop being emotional. <laughs> right? You know, don't worry. That one never seemed to work. Uh, my favorite, my longtime favorite that I put up on the shelf, I don't use anymore, uh, was stop being stressed. That would never work. Seemed like she always got more stressed just from me saying that. Uh, I, th I think there must be something calming and powerful and soothing and assuring and relieving when Jesus or God or an angel say that, though. Because God says it all through Scripture. Before we get to that point, though, and we will, we need to look at what the angel proclaimed to the women. In verse 6 and 7, they, he says, You're seeking Jesus of Nazareth. Now, just to clarify, it's Jesus of Nazareth. This is the tomb where he was laid, the person who was crucified. You saw him the other day. He died. He was indeed put into the tomb. But look at the place where Joseph of Arimathea laid him. He's not there. He's risen. See, look, he is not here. And the angel kindly, patiently, lovingly revealed the truth to the alarmed and frantic women who were in the process of witnessing something impossible, something completely unexpected, something miraculous. And the angel gives them a simple command. He says, go. And this is the call for every Christian. We are to go. We're not to stay put. We're not to stand here alone. We're not to stay in the by the tomb. We are not to hunker down, play it safe, minimize risk, to stay at home. We are to go. And why are we to go? We're to tell. He says, go and tell. We are to tell people about Jesus' resurrection, the story of his death, burial, and resurrection, which brings hope and joy and light and life to all who believe. And he says to go tell, your, tell the disciples. They were, they were to be the first to hear. And the ones who had all deserted Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, all the, all the cowards who had run off in the night. And Jesus wanted them to know that his death was not final. He had risen. He wanted them all to know that they were still his disciples. Even though they'd failed, that he had not given up on them, that he had forgiven them. And then he specifically names Peter. Why? Because he was the one who followed Jesus all the way to his trial. He was not quite as cowardly as the rest, but he had done worse than just running off and deserting Jesus. He had denied him. He denied being with Jesus, denied being his disciple, and denied even knowing Jesus altogether. And Jesus wanted him to know that his death was not final, that he had risen. And then he wanted Peter to know that his denial was not final. Jesus still loved Peter, had forgiven him, and still had something for him to do, to follow him. So he says, go and tell and remember something, just as he told you. Remember what he told you? Remember what Jesus said before his death, that he, he would rise again and meet you in Galilee? He said that in chapter 14, verse 28. So remember what he said and go there. 
Exercise your faith and go see him for yourself. He will be with you. So remember and go and tell. And this is what we're all called to do, each and every one of us. We are together, we are together as a church family. We remember what Jesus taught us and we're to encourage one another in him. But then we are to go. We cannot stay here together in this building all the time. We are to go out into the world and it's a risky business in this day and age. And as we go, we're to tell. We're to tell people the message of salvation, how the message of Jesus rising from the dead has changed us. How it has given us hope, especially in these uncertain times. How we no longer fear death. How we can live with joy and peace in the midst of chaos and crazy. The message of the angel, don't be alarmed. Remember, go and tell. So how did they respond? What happened? Fear. Verse 8. So they went out and they fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. I remember one cloudy morning when we lived way back in the jungle in the Tobo tribe. We were, we were 6,000 feet in the mountains, and that altitude, the clouds would change very quickly. Weather patterns were very unpredictable and dangerous. And it was a sunny morning, and we were supposed to receive a flight of supplies which would last us for the next month or so. And we called in the pilot. And in, in the hour or so that it took for the pilot to arrive at our grass airstrip, the clouds rose up out of the valley and started to cover the mountain peaks and, and close in the airstrip. And we're talking to the pilot on the radio, and, and he circled a couple times, and he couldn't see it. So he's just about to leave, and then he spots the end of the airstrip through a hole in the clouds. And so he circles real quick, and he comes in on the final approach. But, but just as he put his tires on the end of the airstrip, a gust of wind came up out of the valley, and the windsock flew straight up, and it grabbed that little plane the wrong way, and it lifted it up the airstrip and started to sh just shove it up the airstrip. And our airstrip was a one-way airstrip. There was only one way in and out, so you had to land the same way that you took off. Because on the one side, it was up against a, a big mountain. And so the pilot felt the plane being carried up the airstrip towards the mountain, and, and he did all that he could do at the moment as he put the nose in the dirt. And it went into the dirt hard. The propeller broke off, the undercarriage of the plane flew off, the right wheel broke off and, and rolled hundreds of yards away, um, the, the right wing crashed in the soft mud, and the whole plane came to a, a loud and screeching stop, all mangled up a few hundred feet from that mountain. And we were alarmed, to say the least. Uh, we were petrified and panicked as we watched this happen. We, we ran out to the plane fully expecting to see a dead man in the, in the cockpit. At the very best, we thought he had to be extremely injured, and then what were we going to do? Because we're in the middle of nowhere. But instead, not only was he uninjured, there was not a scratch on him. And it was unexpected. It was a miracle. We thought it would end in death, and unexpectedly, it ended in life. And when we saw him step out of that mangled plane, we were trembling and astonished, to say the least. And you cannot stop yourself from trembling. Neither can you stop yourself from being astonished. These things happen to you. Your body and your emotions and your instincts take over. It's just what happens. And these women saw something which threw them into trembling and astonishment. Jesus had stepped out of the tomb, alive and with a new body. No blood, no more torn flesh, just a few scars. And, and the word astonished is, is the word for ecstasy, a throwing of the mind out of its normal state. Their minds were blown, literally, now, would we be so different? I don't think so. They had seen him die, 
They had heard him cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They saw him breathe his last. They saw him buried in the tomb. They saw the stone seal him inside. And now the unexpected, the impossible, the miraculous happened. He was alive. Have you ever seen God's power, his, mirac- his miraculous work, an unexplained provision or protection or an incredible answer to prayer? And, and in the moment, you're completely at a loss for words, trembling, astonished, forgetting even to give God thanks? Well, that's what happened to the women. And ironically, they said nothing to anyone. Now, Mark's gospel has been full of irony, remember? And commentator Edwards states, In his earthly ministry, Jesus commanded people to silence, and they spoke. Remember all through the book? He's like, don't tell anyone, and they all went out and they spoke. But in his resurrected state, the women are commanded to speak, and they flee in silence. Ironic. They had seen a sign much greater than the casting out of a demon or healing of a disease or healing of a deaf man or giving sight to the blind. Jesus had risen from the dead. A stone was rolled away and an angel had just talked to them. Yet they were so astonished that they left saying nothing. Faith does not come as a result of seeing signs and miracles. And obedience is not a natural response to God's revelation. I'm going to repeat that. Faith does not come as a result of seeing signs and miracles. The Pharisees saw miracles, so did the disciples, yet they lacked faith. Faith comes from what is heard, and what is heard comes through the preached word of Christ, Romans 10, 17. And obedience is not a natural response to God's revelation. We have all made, we all have to make a, a choice to obey. Even in the wake of seeing an amazing revelation, these women are faced with the choice. In faith, do they obey? Or are they going to stay silent in fear? And it says that they left in fear. And what did the angel said? He had said, do not be alarmed, do not be afraid. You will go and you will see him. He will be with you. And over and over again in scripture, we see God or angels or Jesus saying, don't be afraid. I will be with you. And though fear is a strong motivation, God doesn't want us to be motivated by fear. He desires that we may be motivated by love. Perfect love casts out fear. We are not to have a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. And when the, when the Israelites had their backs against the sea and the Egyptian army was coming down on them, God, through Moses, told the people, do not fear, see the salvation of the Lord. Later, God told Moses and the Israelites when they were going into battle in the middle of the desert and they weren't warriors, he said, do not fear or panic, for the Lord your God is he who goes with you. And then God spoke to Joshua as he was about to begin leading the nation of Israel and take over the promised land. And he told him, do not fear and do not be dismayed. The Lord your God is with you wherever you go. God came to Gideon and asked him to lead 300 men against an army of innumerable men. And he said, I will be with you. Do not fear. Many years later, when the, Israelites, or when the nation of Israel was surrounded and the people were dying and their nation was on the brink of ruin, God told them time and again through the prophet Isaiah, he said, fear not for I am with you. Do not be dismayed for I am your God. When God called Jeremiah into ministry, a ministry that would be rejected and opposed, he said, do not be afraid of them for I will be there to deliver you. 
The angel Gabriel said to Mary, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. The angels came to the shepherds out in the fields on the evening of Jesus' birth and said, Fear not, for behold, we bring you good tidings. To the father whose daughter had died in the, in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus said, Do not fear, only believe. To disciples out on the sea in a terrible storm, Jesus came walking on the water and he said, Take heart, it's me, don't be afraid. The angel in Mark 6, 6, 16, 6 here said to the women, Do not be alarmed, do not be afraid. You seek Jesus, he is risen. There you will see him, he will be there. And in John chapter 14, verse 27, after he had risen, Jesus said to the disciples, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not, she said, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. In each situation, God was calling people to be courageous, to act contrary to the alarm, the trembling, and astonishment that they felt, opposite of what their fears were telling them to do, to trust in his presence that it was with them. The opposite of fear is courage. And Chesterton said this about courage. Courage is almost a contradiction in terms. It means a strong desire to live, taking the form of readiness to die. And that's the example that Jesus leaves for us. So all along, from the first page to the last, Mark has been telling us to take note of Jesus' life, to follow him. His life of faith is contrasted with the life of everyone else in the book. Faith over fear, peace over distress, courage over denial, risk over safety, love over hate, service over greatness. And then Mark leaves us with a cliffhanger. Will the women take courage that Jesus was with them, or will they allow their fear to cripple them? Will they stay in their fear, or will they follow Jesus in faith? Will they wallow in the distress, or will they follow the Lord of peace? Will they play it safe, or will they risk it all for Jesus? And thankfully, we have Mark, or Matthew's gospel to piece together the ending. And here's how Matthew describes their emotionally incomprehensible situation. He says, So they departed quickly from the tomb with great fear and great joy, and ran and they told the disciples. And as they were running, Jesus met them and said, Greetings! And they came up and they held his feet and worshipped him. And Jesus said to them, again, he said, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers and to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Don't be afraid. Go tell. I will be there. So the women saw Jesus, took courage, and went and told the disciples. Our society, our world right now, is obsessed with fear. All of a sudden, no one wants to take a risk on anything. Don't go out in public for fear of contracting a virus. Don't go get together for the holidays for fear you will unintentionally kill grandma. Don't speak to certain people for fear that they will get violent. Don't speak of Jesus for fear that you will be mocked or ridiculed. Don't help people in need for fear that you will be held liable. Don't say there are only two genders for fear that you will offend someone. Don't call sin, sin for fear that you may make someone feel bad. Don't follow the timeless teachings of the Bible for fear you will sound racist or phobic. Don't drive a car for fear you will ruin the, the planet. Don't touch, don't move, don't breathe, don't talk. Every night on the news, every day on the radio, every scroll on social media, don't, 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 fear, fear, fear. We're being conditioned to be motivated by fear. We are being told to be afraid. 
And it's crippling our society. We can see it. It's crippling our churches. We can see it. It's crippling our capacity to love. And fear is the opposite, the message of Jesus. It's opposite of what Jesus tells us. Eugene Peterson, in his book, Run With Horses, written way back in 1983, he says this. It's really important. Listen to this. He says this. If we forget that the newspapers are the footnotes of Scripture and not the other way around, we will finally be afraid to get out of bed in the morning. Too many of us spend far too much time with the editorial page, not nearly enough time with the prophetic vision. We get our interpretation of politics and economics and morals from journalists when we should only be getting information. The meaning of the world is most accurately given to us by the word of God. That's amazing what he said. Even back in 1983, the meaning of the world is most accurately given to us by the word of God, not by a journalist. He continues, if we are unfamiliar with God's word, we will let evil seep through our emotions like a fog, obscuring the sharp outlines of reality and absorbing everything in its soggy gray In such an atmosphere, we are terrorized by every rumor, jumpy at every noise, edgy, and anxious. It is certainly true that there's evil in the world, a great deal of it, but evil is not everything and it is not everywhere. Pretty profound words that really, really speak to where we're at today. The gospel is a story of courage and love. The message of Jesus' courageous incarnational love put on display for us through his birth and his death, his burial and his resurrection is what brings meaning to life. The message of the resurrection of Jesus is a message of courage and hope and boldness. The perfect love of Jesus casts out fear. We're not to be afraid. We're not to be like the women at the end of Mark. We're not to stay and wallow in our trembling and astonishment. No, we are to remember what the Lord Jesus said. We are to go where he sends us, and we are to tell everyone that we meet to put their faith and trust in Jesus, for there's hope in that, and which means, when you have hope, that there's nothing to be afraid of. Mark's gospel is for the fearful disciple holed up in the corner room of Jerusalem, for the frightened believer sitting in the catacombs of Rome, for the hopeless refugee hunkering down in a refugee camp outside their country, for the alarmed healthcare worker slugging it out day after day, for the trembling police officer or soldier beginning their dangerous shift. For the concerned pastor trying to lead a congregation. For the mom anxiously trying to raise her children. For the dad worried over how to provide and protect for his family. For the grandparents stressfully watching their children and grandchildren struggle through life. Mark's Gospels for all of us who, like the women heading to the tomb, are hanging on to the last shreds of hope. It's only when everything is hopeless that hope begins to be a strength. When things seem most hopeless, that's precisely when God is doing his most amazing and marvelous work. And that's the message of Mark. The tomb is empty. Jesus is alive and well. Jesus opened the way through the torn curtain for us to have a relationship with God Almighty, our Heavenly Father. And that is the hope that we have, and it's true. Jesus offers forgiveness of sins and freedom from the bondage of our sins. Jesus, the one who calmed the storm, freed the demoniac, healed the leper, touched the unclean, healed the bleeding woman, raised the dead, fed the 5,000, walked on water, gave sight to the blind, became servant of all, wrestled with the religious elites, was transfigured into glory, healed the paralytic, allowed himself to be whipped and beaten, gave himself to be crucified, willingly gave up his spirit to death, 
This Jesus is risen. And because he rose, he's our Savior, the Messiah, the Son of God, the Servant of all, the King of kings, and the Lord of lords. Do not fear, he is with us. Remember, follow him, go and tell. Follow him out of the tomb and into the needy world. Follow him out of this community of believers and into the world and tell them to come and join us in worshiping this great God. Similar to the overlooked and alarmed women who were the first witnesses of Jesus' resurrection, we're a simple, we're small, unnoticed church of normal, sometimes alarmed people. But just as God used those three women to start something huge, I'm excited to see what God is going to do with us. And as we go, as we don't fear, but take up, but in faith, taking up our cross, following him by lovingly laying down our lives in service to all. Whether we live or die, our future is secure in the loving hands of our Father. So why does Mark end with the word afraid? I think it's to brilliantly leave us with this question. Will we be motivated by fear into saying nothing? Or will we in faith obey Jesus' call, his command? Do not fear. Remember, go tell everyone we meet who he is and that he is alive. It's an especially important message during this particular Christmas. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for bringing us to the end of Mark and thank you for all that it has taught us. Thank you for this amazing life of Jesus that teaches us to be courageous and to tell others all about him, regardless of what happens. We love you. We thank you for for being faithful to us. We thank you that we have nothing to fear, that we are safe in your hands, and that you're a good God. I pray that we would go forth in the power of this truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Don't forget to drop your offerings in the boxes on your way out. And why don't you stand for the benediction? Receive these words. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Church, go in the courage and the strength of the Lord Jesus. You are dismissed.